Welcome to the Next Generation Leader Podcast, where we believe great leaders are listeners, especially during their youth. Good leaders learn from their successes and mistakes, but great leaders learn from the successes and mistakes of those who go before them. I'm your host, Zach Funderburg, and I'm not here with my co-host, Coop McCulley, giving him the week off because I just got back from the trip of a lifetime from Washington, D.C. with a group of MBA students from Dallas Baptist University. We were taking a class called Presidential Leadership leading through turbulent times. And what we sought out to do was to seek the the wisdom of those who went before us, whether it be John Adams, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton, uh, Martin Luther King, these great leaders of history, and learn what they did to lead through turbulent times. One of the main areas of, of life that we studied was the Revolutionary War and the founding of our country. There were some great men that lived through those times, and so we sought out to study what they did and how they handled their times, because we're living in through turbulent times, and we will always live in turbulent times on this side of heaven. But there's one man that stood out to me more than anyone else on this trip. They're all great in their own capacity, but there's one man, George Washington. And it wasn't necessarily his presidency or what he did as president. It was what he did before and what led up to him becoming president, why he was chosen president, why he did the things he did while he was president was because of what he did before. And why out of all the men in the Continental Congress and all the men who who signed the Declaration of Independence and all of the men who, who formed our great nation, why did they choose George Washington? And there's so many things we can say, and there's so many things that led up to him. And he was an ambitious man, but he was a man who was faithful with what he was given. He didn't grow up wanting to be the president of the United States, but he was faithful. And as time came, and as as they called, and he answered, and he became the first president of the United States. Now, there's so many things I want to get into, but what I want to do is take you kind of on a journey through George Washington's life and kind of learn from his successes but also learn from his mistakes because we know that they were plentiful because he was human. And there's so many things we can learn. And so on this trip, we were here with our, our president at DBU, Dr. Adam Wright. We were also with Pastor uh, Pastor Brent Taylor, Dr. Brent Taylor from Church, uh, First Baptist Carrollton of Church of the Fields. And he's also a, a, an author. He's written two books, one, Founding Leadership, and his second and most recent, Presidential Leadership, which I just finished the other day. And if you can, go get a copy now. It is a wonderful book, and it walks through so many presidents and their leadership. And there's so many things we can learn from, from Dr. Taylor's humor and from his wit when he talks about presidential leadership. But I want to give you some excerpts from their their, uh, lecturing this week and what I learned from them. This course was so fascinating for me, and it was so uh, enlightening on on the way that these men think. But I want to focus this specifically on George Washington, the character of George Washington. When we first arrived in, in Washington, D.C., we were kind of looking at all the monuments, gazing upon what, how amazing they were and how beautiful they were. The first one we went to was the, the Lincoln Memorial, the wonderful statue of Lincoln standing over the, the reflection or sitting over the, the reflection pool, and you can see the nation that he had saved. And then we went to the Jefferson Memorial, and we see him peering up, all stoic and, and brilliant as he was, peering into the White House and watching the actions that are being taken today. That is his legacy. And then we go past the Washington Monument, which is just a point. It's just a a long, and I'm sure you've all seen it, but a long kind of tube-like structure, and it points at the top. It's a faceless monument. All the other monuments had faces except for George Washington's because he embodied the American idea. He embodied the founding. That's what set him apart. 
that he was an incarnational leader that it was in the flesh. He was the mission of the founding. He was the mission of the Congress in the flesh. He was America. And that's why he was looked to and why he became the first president of the United States. And there are so many things that I want you to learn from this episode and, and from Dr. Taylor and Dr. Wright. And I hope you enjoy it. And I'll kind of be talking throughout. And so stick with me here because we're going to learn about one of the greatest Americans to ever live, George Washington. year is 1732, February 22nd to be exact. The legend was born. George Washington is born in Virginia and soon moves to Mount Vernon where he will spend most of his days. But here's our first lecture with both Dr. Taylor and Dr. Wright sitting in the back of Mount Vernon, George Washington's home. There's rocking chairs sitting out across this, this porch that is by a grassy field that looks over the Potomac River. You can hear the wind whistling through the trees and the birds chirping over the air. The, the place that George Washington loved most, Mount Vernon. Here are just some quick facts about George Washington from Dr. Taylor and then some fascinating stories about his leadership and George Washington's character. A lot of incredible people that you think of. Who are some of the founding fathers? Give me some names. Hamilton. Hamilton, Madison. Adams. Adams. Washington. What's that? Jefferson. Ben Franklin. Yeah, so you have all these incredible people who are uh, who are these uh, uh, incredible minds. I mean, Ben Franklin, there's nobody like him in that time period. I mean, he's like Elon Musk and Steve Jobs and Bill Gates all wrapped into one, along with a whole bunch of other people that we could list. So you have, he's remarkable in and of himself. And you have Thomas Jefferson, this incredible mind. And we're gonna talk a lot more about Jefferson. You have all these people that they all look to Washington as their superior. So why is that? What is the thing that stood out about, about him? Well, uh, Joseph Ellis, and if you were in our group, he mentioned Joseph Ellis. Uh, Joseph Ellis has written uh, a biography of, of Washington that is uh, called His Excellency. And in that book, he talks about what is it that stood out? It was his character. But they all viewed him as the superior, and character is really the thing that kind of stands out. Now, let me just. Uh, uh, let me just tell you just a little bit about uh, Washington. Okay, so he's born on his birthday. Uh, that is February 22nd, 1732, or February 11th, if you prefer the old calendar. I don't know what calendar y'all are operating off of. But uh, um, Augustine, Mary Washington, his parents, we heard some of those kind of things. His name, I'll just give you like trivia type stuff. It's kind of interesting because they gave you a lot of facts today. So his name was George Washington. He had no middle name. That was it. Uh, we talked about the rules of civility and decent behavior, the Jesuit rule book that they followed that he would memorize. We give you some examples of some of those. Sleep not when others speak. It's a really good one right now. Uh, sit not when others stand. Y'all are disobeying that part. Uh, speak not when you should hold your peace. Walk not when others stop. Here's another one of those that he memorized. When you see a crime punished, you may be inwardly pleased, but always show pity to the suffering offender. It's really good. He was six foot two, not our tallest president, that was LBJ or Abraham Lincoln, not our shortest president, that was James Madison. Uh, uh, Lincoln and LBJ were six four, 
Madison was 5'4". Uh, George Washington had a handsome face pitted with uh, marks. He had, uh, like you get chicken pox, he had marks uh, from smallpox when he was in Barbados with his brother Lawrence, uh, who uh, dies of tuberculosis, sorry for your loss. Uh, so uh, here's something a lot of people don't know about Washington. Washington was one of our sickest presidents, and I don't mean that like he was like our cool sick, I mean like sick sick. You know, like wasn't feeling well, sick. These are some of the things he suffered from: diphtheria, tuberculosis, smallpox, dysentery, malaria, quincy, carbuncle, pneumonia, and epiglottitis, just to name a few. She mentioned him having red hair. Did y'all catch that? Did y'all catch that? that not, that's not what you think of. What, what do you think of? White. Yeah. So they would powder their wigs. All right, they, he didn't wear a wig. A lot of the guys wore wigs. He didn't wear a wig. He would just powder his auburn hair. His, he's not going to be recognized. He's going to be overlooked. The, uh, the officers, the British officers, are not going to treat him as a real soldier because he is a provincial. He's a colonial. In other words, he's a hayseed. He's a redneck. He's not somebody that could really be one of us. So they're going to pass over him. Sometimes in life, leaders get passed over. They want something, they want to be somewhere, they want to do something, and for whatever reason, they get passed over. How you respond when you get passed over says a lot about you. George Washington continued to press on. He let that, that, that being set back, he let that move him forward. You have other people like Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold's going to get passed over on a couple of occasions, and we'll talk about Benedict Arnold when we're in Williamsburg, but he's going to get passed over on a couple of occasions. What's he going to do? He's going to get bitter. He's going to end up betraying the country because of that bitterness. How leaders deal with setbacks says a lot about what's on the inside of you. It says a lot about who you are. When you think you should be selected and you're not selected, how you respond in that situation speaks volumes. And it's really going to go back to character. I think George Washington's character was a lot more sound, a lot more sure, a lot more certain than Benedict Arnold's character, which was all about him. George Washington, the founding fathers, they live for the glorious cause. Benedict Arnold lives for himself. You're going to encounter both of those kind of people in your life. You're going to encounter both of those kind of people in your in your job. You're going to encounter those kind of people in your neighborhood. You're going to encounter all those kind of folks. So character is going to come out in, in a lot of different ways. Um, of course, you know, Continental Congress, Yorktown. Uh, we'll talk, we're going to Yorktown. The surrender, how he, he doesn't uh, take over. Uh, some of you Hamilton fans remember when King George is singing about, I didn't know that somebody could give up power, that people did that, you know. Uh, that's why they said the world's turned upside down after the Battle of Yorktown. He just, he was so amazed. So uh, we talk about, we talk about George Washington. We talk about the kind of man that he was. We talk about his character. Let me just say a word about you as a leader and your character, who you are. Listen to what uh, Abraham Lincoln said. He said, reputation is the shadow, character is the tree. Abraham Lincoln said, reputation is the shadow, character is the tree. George Washington is going to, uh, uh, he's going to lead by character. That's going to be a big part of how he does things and, things and decisions that he makes. And character is going to drive him. And character has to drive you. If you are a leader without character, you can rise to the top. You can rise to the highest office in the land. That doesn't mean that you're a good leader. 
fame does not equal to being a good leader. I think all of us know folks who have gotten popular or famous or whatever you want to say, and they're, they're not the kind of folks you want your kids to grow up to be like. But uh, Washington allowed his character to speak not only uh, for him, but it also uh, impacted decisions he made and the ways that he did things. Uh, let me just give you a couple of ways that character reveals itself, and then I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Wright, let him share whatever he wants to share. Character is going to show up in your reactions, in your reactions. Proverbs 25, 28 says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Uh, there is a conspiracy that rises after the American Revolution from soldiers that are trying to, that are frustrated. They meet in the town of Newburgh, which is outside of Albany, New York. They meet in Newburgh there to uh, uh, express their grievances and their frustration over 1782, over the uh, not being paid, including a guy named Horatio Gates. Horatio Gates is going to lead the Battle of Saratoga where Benedict Arnold's going to fight. If it wasn't for that battle, the French would not have come in. If the French had not come in, we wouldn't have won the Battle of Yorktown. Had we not won the Battle of Yorktown, we'd all be here visiting the home of a man that was hanged by the British. But we did win. But uh, at, uh, at Newburgh, Washington arrives because his men, these soldiers, these officers are talking about overthrowing the government that they just fought for because they haven't been paid, they haven't been treated right. So he goes to plead with them to ask them, hey, don't do this. Don't, don't, don't turn over what we've done. Most revolutions are overturned by further revolutions. He's trying to keep the country together that hasn't even formed. I mean, we are fledgling at best. And in the process of that, he pulls out a letter that he has received from some folks at the Continental Congress. And as he's reading the letter, he starts to stumble with his words, and they're very, it's very odd for him. His soldiers have not seen him, heard him do that. And then he reaches in his pocket and he pulls out his glasses. And he puts them on. They've never seen him wearing glasses before. And he says to them, I apologize, but I have to put on my spectacles, for not only have I grown gray, but nearly blind in service to my country. Thomas Jefferson said at that very moment, the conspiracy was dead. It was over. It was done. Men began to get up and apologize. In fact, they even said that men were weeping in shame over the thought of even trying to overthrow the government. It's the character of him. It speaks in reactions. Your relationships, Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ, Galatians 6, 2. Your relationships show up. Character shows up in your reputation, Proverbs 22, 1. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. His friends spoke very highly of Washington. Um, Nathaniel Green, Abigail Adams, they all spoke very high. In fact, Abigail Adams told her husband, John, you haven't told me half. You haven't told me half of the kind of man that he was, that he is. My favorite quote about him, though, is Gilbert Stewart, who is a painter. Gilbert Stewart said, had he been born in the forest, he would have been the fiercest among the savage tribes. That's, uh, uh, he's a bad dude, That's <laughs> what he's saying there. And uh, even, uh, uh, even George III, when George III found out that he was going to surrender his sword and not try to take over the country, George III said, if he does that, he will be the greatest man to ever live. That's your enemy saying that. So character speaks well. 
which reminds me of 1 Peter 2.12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. There's a lot of great things about George Washington, but what set him apart was his character. gotten to know sort of the character of George Washington, who he was, what did, what did he look like, how was he treated and respected. Here's Dr. Adam Wright talking about even more of his character and another amazing story, the way that he led. Character counts. Character counts. I had a mentor once tell me, uh, be careful with what you watch and what you see, where these eyes go, because that informs your thoughts. Be careful what you think, because your thoughts become your actions. Be careful what you do, because what you do becomes a habit, and your habits inform your character. And so, one of the leadership lessons I've learned in my life is to protect your character at all costs. Um, and I'll go to the ends of the earth to protect my character, my integrity. And we're discussing the ethical side of leadership. <clears throat> North House uh, discusses the six pillars of character in his book, and I would encourage you to go back and uh, reflect on those, and you're going to see elements of that come out in, in what Dr. Taylor just shared with you uh, just now from a historic perspective. But one of those pillars is caring. And as part of caring, uh, I think that's that what's demonstrated for leaders and leadership is empathy. I think em being empathetic as a leader is uh, critical, especially in times of crisis. And we reflect on the examples of Washington, particularly here, but even with Lincoln as well, they circulated among the troops. They were empathetic to the people that they were leading. Um, empathy defined is the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. The ability to understand and then share the feelings of another. I want you to consider the quality of being empathetic as a leader, being caring as a leader as part of a character building process. When we think about Washington as we sit here on the piazza, overlooking this beautiful uh, view right here. One of my favorite stories of Washington demonstrating empathy and persuasion as a caring leader. It was December the 31st, 1776, and the enlistments of the veterans were beginning to expire. And these were people who have fought hard given up their own fortunes to fight in the war and weren't making a whole lot to begin with. As their enlistments were beginning to expire on January the 1st, Washington makes this appeal to the soldiers. He said, if you'll stay on six more months, I'll give you a bounty of $10 a head here. Which was a lot of money at the time because $6 a month is what the soldiers made for a living fighting in the, fighting in the war. At times, it was hard to even get the money there in the soldiers' hands. So he was persuading them, essentially, with a lot of money at the time. And so he had the soldiers line up in formation. He mounted his 
white, magnificent horse, old Nelson there, and he calls the troops into formation, and the drum beats begin to drum, and he said, at the stop of the drum beat, if you're willing to enlist for your nation, please step forward. And so the drum beat stopped, and nobody stood forward. Think about that for just a second. You know, things are not going so well for the Continental Army in 1776. And the commander-in-chief just makes this appeal to his soldiers, and no one steps forward. And so Washington, he steps back in his horse, retreats for a moment. He stops, he gathers himself, and he comes back to his troops. And he says these words, and I'm going to read to you. He says, my brave fellows, you have done everything I've asked for you to do, and more than could be reasonably expected. But your country's at stake. Your wives, your houses, and every single thing that you hold dear is what's at stake in this cause. You have been worn out. You're set up with fatigue and hardships, but we know not how to spare you. If you will consent to stay one month longer, you will render the service, that service to the cause of liberty and to your country, which you can probably never do under any other circumstance. And again, the drums roll, and this time, guess what happened? the men began stepping forward. Nathaniel Green, who was there to witness those moments and to recount these words, he says this, God Almighty inclined their hearts to listen to the proposal, and they engaged anew. A couple of lessons here. When met with disagreement, uh, when things aren't going your way, when the action that you're hoping uh, you took will result in something you would expect doesn't occur quite how it, you thought it would pan out. Most people would just ride off into the sunset. Eh, oh well, you know. Now Washington gathered himself and he went back and he engaged the soldiers in a very empathetic sort of way. He understood where they were coming from. He understood what was at stake. He related to them. You know, your, your fortunes, your family, your country is at stake. Um, he empathized with them. He didn't give up. He went back. He re-engaged. And he connected, not just right here in the head. You know, it's not always money that motivates. And he found that out really quickly. Um, but he engaged their hearts anew. You know, he reached out empathetically and persuaded them as a leader. He didn't give up. He demonstrated empathy, and he demonstrated persuasion uh, in that moment. They could have lost the, the Revolutionary War, yet he continued. They marched on. They marched on to victory. There were several victories after that defining moment. There were several hardships as well. And we might do well to remember that in five of the seven battles for the first three years of the Revolutionary War, Washington lost them. You know? He was a loser in many respects, but he was such a great winner because he did not give up. And I would be remiss if I didn't take the opportunity to quote Washington, my favorite quote again. 
that perseverance and spirit have done wonders in all ages. You were born to lead for such a time as this. You are becoming. The hope is that you're becoming a reflection of what God's called you to become, not a reflection of what you think or what you would like to become. Hopefully, what you would like to become is a faithful and obedient follower of Christ. Because we don't know what the future holds, but we know right now we've been given this day to prepare for that time, prepare for those moments. And so as your character is being formed, again, demonstrate great caution. What you think and what you see, what you read, because those become your words, and your words, but those become your thoughts, and your thoughts become your words, and your words become your actions, and your actions form your habits. Now you know the character and what it takes to be a leader like George Washington. I want to introduce you to a man named George Washington on this trip while we were in Williamsburg, Virginia. We got to meet a man who plays the part of George Washington. He comes in as a, as a young man, the, the man that you would meet pre-Revolutionary War, pre-presidency, the, the young George Washington. And a big part of George Washington's story is that his father died when he was very young. And this caused him to lose his ability to get uh, the education that many of the other people would get. So that's why when you see the, the Continental Congress meeting, once we have ga gained our freedom from Great Britain or from from England, you don't see him much as the thinker, as, as the man who is putting the thoughts on paper. Obviously he has thoughts and he has opinions, but he becomes a leader. He's not the man that writes the Declaration of Independence. Obviously, that's Thomas Jefferson. He doesn't have all of the, the ideas for policies, but he's the man that everyone looks to. And that's why I want to play this part from our, our talk with the young George Washington, the actor that came to visit us, because you get to see the young, the, the, the insecurity side of George Washington because he's not as educated as everyone else. So here he is. I want you to meet young George Washington. I am quite happy to have the opportunity to speak to all of you. Um, I understand that if I'm not misinformed, you all are uh, individuals who are learning a great deal about leadership as you are attend and focus. Is that correct? Yes, yes sir. Very good. I, uh, I apologize if you do not have something better to speak to you on the subject. <laughs> I, uh, I find myself um, unmatched in the company in my room, or in this room, as it is. And you all are, uh, I'm assuming, university students, is this correct? Very good. Um, I say unmatched because of one very simple reason. And I, I do not have the luxury of an education like you all do. And so first and foremost, congratulations on your studies. And I have no doubt it will continue to serve you well. And I highly encourage you to continue engaging in that pursuit, as you will find that it prepares you for your future. So um, I speak of education. I, uh, I found myself at a very young age robbed of the individual who would lead me through life. My father died when I was very young, 11 years old, um, which effectively, how best to put this delicately, cut off the potential that I had for my immediate future. Because of these circumstances, when my father died, I found myself robbed of one of the two primary individuals who would guide in that process. His financial leadership, his uh, strength of character, his connections, all dead with him. So, I... Uh, was left in the care of my mother, which may sound like a terrible thing for some, but it is not. 
and she's a, an individual of great strength. You, you, you all know people who are, uh, how do I put this? Tenacious in every aspect of life, strong-willed, driven, knowing what is right and wrong in every circumstance, and even if they are incorrect, it does not matter for their word of law. <laughs> that is my mother. She did give birth to me, we were very much alive. Her guidance was what she, I found, effectively serving as both mother and father. She did not remarry, which is incredibly unusual in Virginia society. It's very unusual for a, a lady of quality, like my mother, to, to not find herself another partner for life to help her children and whatever children that she and her new husband might have moving forward. She chose not to. So she raised myself and four younger siblings, smaller versions of myself, effectively, for the next few years of her life. So, patronage. My elder half-brother, Lawrence, you may have heard of him. I understand that you were in Mount Vernon recently. I apologize for not being there. I would have greeted you appropriately. Uh, but uh, that was his home, Mount Vernon. He named it after uh, one of his commanding officers of the Spanish the war against the Spanish in Cartagena many years ago, in the 40s. And he named it such, and I spent many of my young days there. For he effectively took on the position of father. Mother led me in home life and expectations. Many, many expectations. And Lawrence took on the leadership of the public things. I hoped to have education in England, like my elder brothers had, my elder half brothers. I hoped to go to Appleby School in London and learn the finer things of life, like you all are language, culture, philosophy, higher thinking, expectation, thought, and how to deal with others who are not from the same place that you are from. For when you are in university, what better place to rub elbows with those who are not like yourselves, to exchange the mutual understanding of ideas, to share thoughts one with another, and learn and grow beyond your simple life of one place. So the simple life for me it was. The money dried up and my father died, so no school in London for me, no school in Women Mary, no school in New York or Philadelphia or anywhere else. Instead, my education ended around 13 years old. And believe you me, I have felt that very painfully ever since. So my education found itself in a different direction. I, through the patronage of Lord Fairfax, found myself in the frontier of Virginia, surveying the wilderness. Now, why does that seem so important? Well, because, again, I would not be where I am today had it not been for that experience. The, the separation from youthful expectations and desires to the reality of the world, they're not the same at all. Here's a cut from the, the last few moments we had with young George Washington. He gave us an opportunity to ask questions, and I wish I could play all of those for you, but we don't have the time. So I picked one. When George Washington was young, he committed to memory 110 rules of civility, and these are the framework in which he lived his life. Everything he did flowed through the, the 110 rules of civility that he had memorized. And so one of our students asked uh, young George which of these 110 rules he kept close to his heart, and this was his answer. Of the 110 rules of civility that you've memorized, is there one that stands out, or one that's your favorite? Keep that small spark of celestial fire and flame in your heart full of conscience. That dictates everything you do. And from those things you can find, those qualities we talked about before, honor, integrity, and responsibility. The character of a man is what drives him. Not his birth, not his connection, not society, not what small, poor, handy, in the Dell, whether free or enslaved, high born, low born, Catholic, Protestant, atheist, Mohammedan, does not matter. It's your character that drives the conscience. you're able to get that answer. His favorite rule was labor to keep alive in your breast that little spark of celestial fire called conscience. 
through that drives everything. He says, let your character define you. Even this guy that wasn't a part of our trip noticed that character is what drove George Washington, and that is what set him apart as a leader. Our last little section that I want to play here is from a, a moment where we are sitting at the, the, the Yorktown. As we know, Yorktown, if you're a Hamilton fan, is one of the best songs in Hamilton, in my opinion, but it's the, the last battle, one of the last battles of the American Revolution. It's where Cornwallis surrenders to George Washington in some way. Cornwallis, really, what we learned, doesn't actually come out. He sends someone else out, but that's besides the point. But this is the moment at the end of the war, and this is where you see George Washington lead with strength, but also with grace, and leaders need to do both lead with strength and lead with grace. So I hope you learn from, from George Washington's example at the Battle of Yorktown. All right, so we're gonna talk about leadership, strength and grace. Strength and grace. Um, and I want to kind of, I want to start out just by, I want to tell the story a little bit. The movie was really interesting to me that we saw because it told everything except it didn't get to really the surrender. It didn't really talk about the surrender. And I think there's a lot that's, that's in the surrender. So this is the field where it takes place, all right? This is where the um, the uh, the end of it takes place. So this is 1781, October 1781 is when this is all yeah. ending. And this is a time of pressure for Washington. Do you remember at the beginning of the movie, the guy that doesn't really look like George Washington was uh, talking to... Um, <laughs> I guess that was, I don't know who that was, who the French guy was. But you had the interpreter there. Mm -hmm. I don't remember. Do anybody know the French guy's name? I don't remember what it what it was. So uh, so they were, he was talking to French Fry, and <laughs> they were talking about about what to do. And he was saying, hey, I want to I want to attack New York. I want to attack New York. And the French guy was saying, no, that's French for no. <laughs> he was saying, no, because... The uh, the Brit the uh, the fleet was coming up from the um, like around the, like the Caribbean area the French fleet the fleets would kind of move in move out that kind of deal and so the French are coming up from there and he's saying you've got to go down we've got Cornwallis in that toothpaste tube like we were talking about mm -hmm. and so we've got to go because the because the fleet's going to come up in the Chesapeake we saw the Chesapeake today uh, we just drove by the Chesapeake out there. You attack on one side, we're gonna squeeze him in the middle. So that's what they're gonna end up doing. The French are kind of threatening to leave. There's been some losses down here by the Americans in this area. Benedict Arnold's been causing trouble. There's just uh, some uh, some battles. There's a battle called Guilford Courthouse. It's not very far away. That was a loss as well. Soldiers are not getting paid, which means there's fears of mutiny that Washington's having to deal with as well. So he knows he's gotta, he's gotta do something. So they get to this and we saw where Hamilton, uh, you know, readout number nine and 10, they're squeezing in, squeezing in, the ships are in the back. Cornwallis can't go anywhere. Uh, the storm comes in, that's part of the hurricane. Some of y'all remember, uh, there's a book, uh, I've been talking about Nathaniel Philbrick this week, he wrote a book called In the Eye of the Hurricane, it's about the Battle of Yorktown and how this storm plays into this story and how this hurricane is just, you know, I mean, it's just the divine, act that's taking place there with nature I think in many ways okay so the battle is won all right Cornwallis and uh or Washington and Cornwallis have men that are going to meet together and they're going to they're going to uh, go over terms of surrender and they argue about it and they argue about it and finally Washington says 
No more. No more arguing. And the reason why is because he's afraid that Cornwallis is delaying, waiting on reinforcements to come in. So he says, no more. We're going to, uh, we're going to negotiate. We're going. We're going to. We're going to end this. And uh, the the people say, well, we need more time. So Washington just starts firing again. Just starts firing cannons again. And you saw Cornwallis in his house. All those bright flashings of the light. That was either the, you know, it was either bombs going off or it was the lightning from the storm that was coming in. But finally, he says, okay. I don't want to get bombed anymore. We will negotiate. And so the negotiation is made. In fact, George Washington has orders written up and he says, I expect them to be signed by 11 a.m. and the garrison to march out at 2 p.m. So they're signed and at 2 p.m. October the 19th, articles of of, uh, capitulation are signed. And at 2 p.m., this is where the uh, surrender takes place, 7,000 British and Germans. The Germans are fighting with the British. They're just high, you know, they're just paid guns. They're just mercenaries. 7,000 surrender out here. The British have a lot more soldiers than 7,000. All right. The loss of those 7,000 soldiers is not devastating to the crown, to to England and ending the war, except this war has been going on for six years at that point. It's going to take two more years before everything is all signed, sealed, and delivered and the war is over. But after six years of fighting and not really getting anywhere, and people over in England sending their boys 3,000 miles across the sea to fight over in colonies that they don't really care all that much about, people in England are like, I'm done. I'm finished with all this. Okay? I'm, I'm, I just, we're done. So the, the idea of fighting longer is over. When Lord North who is the prime minister, when he hears that uh, Cornwallis is lost here, Lord North says the war is over. The war is over. And um, so the surrender happens here. So what happens is they're gonna line up and you're gonna line up the French on the right, the Americans on the left, and the uh, British soldiers are going to march out. And as they are marching this direction, they're coming this this way. They are having to march out and they're having to lay down their weapons. Now, while they're doing this, the band, the British band, you always got to have a band with you. The British band plays the song, The World Turned Upside Down. So you Hamilton fans, that's where that reference, that's what that reference is to in that song, Yorktown. The world turned upside down. And even George III said, the world has turned upside down. This is the greatest army in the world fighting against a bunch of Boy Scouts. You know, I mean, they just, the world has turned upside down. So they come marching out, they're playing that, and this is what the British do. The British will not look at the colonists. They will not look at George Washington and his men. They refuse to look at him. They are so angry. To surrender is not only just to surrender yourself, it is to lay down your weapon. So some of the British are so mad, they're throwing down their weapons in an attempt to break them. They're so upset by all of it, and they refuse to look at uh, the the Americans. They'll only look at the French. They've hated the French forever. But that shows you how mad they are. Lafayette, who is on the side, he is standing not with his French counterparts, but he is on the side with the Americans. He orders the the American band 
to strike up Yankee Doodle Dandy. So they're playing Yankee Doodle Dandy while those British troops are having to walk through and lay down their weapons. But the first person to come through is a guy named Charles O'Hara. Charles O'Hara is the second in command under Cornwallis. O'Hara comes to present the sword of surrender. That's the official way that you surrender. So he is leading the line to bring the sword. Why is he there and not Cornwallis? Because Cornwallis, remember he tried to escape the night before, but the storm was too bad. You saw that in the video. Cornwallis says, I'm sorry, I have COVID, I think. I've got to quarantine. I can't come to the party. I would love to come and be humiliated by surrendering, but I can't do that. I'm sick. So I'm going to send my second in command. He sends his second in command, Charles O'Hara. Charles O'Hara comes to, first of all, Rochambeau, the French officer, the French commanding officer. Uh, they said that the code word is Rochambeau. That's what it was. The code word here at York Yorktown was Rochambeau. So if you show up, they ask you for the code word, and you don't know it's Rochambeau, they shoot you. All right? So the code word was Rochambeau, and that was named. That was in honor of the French officer that was there. He goes to present his sword to Rochambeau. Rochambeau says, no. You remember that? Remember that French word? It means no. He tells him no and tells him he's got to go to George Washington. He points to George Washington. That's who you're surrendering to. And O'Hara is like, oh, he did it like it with a British accent. Yeah. Takes the sword and he goes over to George Washington to present the sword of surrender. And George Washington says, uh, are you Cornwallis? <laughs> and O'Hara says, no, nah, I think he's got COVID. He's not here. He's, he's sick. I'm his second in command. And Washington says, oh, well, then you will present the sword of surrender to my second in command. You're not going to give it to me. So get off your high horse. Speaking of getting off your high horse, uh, when O'Hara was trying to do all of this, his horse took a big old steamer right there in front of everybody, and it rattled O'Hara. It was not a very good horseman anyway, but it rattled him uh, and uh, all of that. So that's a little side part that they don't put in the history books, but it's a true story. So he sends him to his second in command. So who is his second in command? Well, he's got several second in commands, but listen to this. George Washington chooses one man to be his second in command to receive it. His name is Benjamin Lincoln. Benjamin Lincoln. You know how he's related to Abraham Lincoln? It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. I don't think they're related at all, except for that. <laughs> Benjamin Lincoln is one of his commanding officers. Benjamin Lincoln had been a, Brit a, a, a patriot commander leading a battle against troops, British troops, a year earlier in South Carolina. And when he had to surrender, um, Lincoln had to surrender, when Lincoln surrendered, the British absolutely humiliated him. And there are like certain terms that you always give. There's certain terms that you give to commanders and things like that. They didn't give Lincoln any of those and they embarrassed him. They humiliated him. And so what did George Washington do? He made the British surrender to Benjamin Lincoln just kind of like elevating Lincoln again up to 
up to a place of, of honor, of being the one to be able to receive. So he surrenders that sword, and then the entire 7,000 British, uh, British uh, military come marching by. What Cornwallis had said was this. Cornwallis said, I would like for you to release my 7,000 men, the, the British and the Germans, to go back to England and back to Germany, not to fight anymore. That was often done. So they would take their, you know, you get, you surrender, you get shipped back home, you're like off the field. You can't be used anymore. You say, well, why did they use them anyway? Because there's this thing called honor. And the honor code said you didn't use those guys again. That's what Benjamin Lincoln had asked for for his men, and he was not allowed. His men were held captive. So Cornwallis asked that his British and Germans that are surrendering be allowed to go back to England and back to Germany, to which George Washington said in French, no. <laughs> and they went and they became captives instead. He did not allow them to do that. And so he was he was restoring, he was restoring his, uh, his man. He was restoring Benjamin Lincoln there in that moment. Leaders show strength. All right, I said this is about strength and grace. Leaders show strength. He was, uh, he's willing to hold the line. Cornwallis wants his men freed and sent back to Germany and sent back to England. He refuses, he says, no, you're not gonna do that. He holds the line and leaders hold the line. I'll tell you something else about George Washington and I put this in my book about uh, George W. Bush. And I think it's true about both uh, George W's. And that is, Washington did not suffer fools. George W didn't either. Washington did not suffer fools. What does that mean? When you say somebody doesn't suffer fools, what does that mean? <clears throat> Right, they don't, they don't tolerate idiots. If you're gonna act like a fool, that's fine. Go be a fool somewhere, but don't do it around me. That's not the way that, that we're gonna do things. People who make, you know, who are always making dumb moves and doing foolish things. George W. Bush was exactly the same way. By the way, you guys probably have seen a lot about George W. Bush growing up in your life, about how he's kind of like this cowboy, that image. Uh, he loved that. He loved having that image, but you got to understand George W. Bush. He got, you know, they made him out like on Saturday Night Live as being a dummy, you know, strategery and all that kind of stuff. George W. Bush is brilliant. Mm -hmm. He graduated from Yale. He's no, he's no dummy. He loved that image and he played it up. And when he was president of the United States, not a student at DBU, not a student at DBU and working his job. But when he was president of the United States, he averaged 100 books a year that he read. All right. So when you don't when you don't have time to read a book, don't just don't forget that the president of the United States read 100. All right. So George W., the first one, did not suffer fools. Okay. Leaders show grace. Leaders show grace. How did you see? How did you see Washington showing grace? Okay, he invites his enemies to come and have dinner with him at night. Pretty amazing. How else? 
did allow two days of negotiations. Allow two days of negotiations. Okay. What else? I think of him elevating other people, whether it be Alexander Hamilton or, or Lincoln. Okay, so he elevated people, gave Alexander Hamilton a time, a shot that he wanted, when he wanted. And then what else did you say? With uh, his second in command. Yeah, with Lincoln. He puts Lincoln. I mean, that's showing grace. Here's a guy that's been humiliated. He's now restoring him in all of it. Kind of, you might say he redeemed people who failed. He redeemed people who failed. I'll come back to that in just a minute. Uh, leaders also, he shows grace by uh, he's humble in victory. Uh, Washington was not one to gloat. He would celebrate, but he was not one to gloat. And he was a man who gave second chances. Does that sound like a leader that you know? Does that sound like any leaders that you know? Is there anyone that stands out that you think, man, that sounds like somebody? Strength and grace. What are you saying? Jesus. Yeah, it sounds like Jesus to me. That sounds a lot like Jesus. Second chances, grace, humility. Are you high fiving or blocking the sun? I'm. I'm raising my hand. Okay, you're raising your hand. Okay. I even see a little bit of me or a lot of meekness in him, like strength under control. Yes. Even when the actor last night was talking about how he was stoic. Yeah. But like, controlled his passion. I think a lot of people today like have passion and want to express it but George Washington knew like the timing and the circumstances and yes he had like a lot of strength and power but he held it under control <laughs> and I think that's a really great quality that I admire about him after studying him is just his meekness yeah that's good that's good yeah people think that meekness in the bible means weakness but it does not it means strength under control in fact the image of meekness is a horse under bridle a horse has a lot of power you know, a big horse, but when that bridle is on that horse, it follows, it, he's able to control. And I don't know if it's everybody, if it's anybody, or just one body here. Or maybe it's a few of you, but somebody here maybe has been carrying on, hanging on to something from the past that you need to let go of, you need to release. And just like George Washington forgave Benjamin Lincoln, restored him, you might say, God restores you. He'll restore you. Let's go ahead and just kind of make it all come full circle. What are we standing in front of? What is this called out here? The surrender field. And it may very well be that there's something you need as a leader to surrender in your life. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's something that's rotten inside. Maybe it's something that you need to let go of. But for whatever reason, you're hanging on to something you need to let go of. You need to release. And I don't know what that is. And I don't need to know what that is. But you need to know what that is if it's there. And you need to take time to say, God, I want to release it. But what's most important is that you tell God. We like to tell everybody else things. And we, oh, yeah, I need to tell God that. But let it be a time of surrender in your life. And what happens is, as a leader, we've got to be people of strength and grace. We've got to be strong, but we also have to be forgiving. Because we see in Jesus strength and grace. We've seen it in George Washington. But i got to tell you, I don't want to be like George Washington. I want to be like Jesus. I love George Washington. I mean, he's one of my heroes, and that's why uh, we're going to name our dog after him. <laughs> 
Am I right, Braden? No. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we got a big fight going on. We'll talk about that later. But, uh, but I mean, George Washington's one of my heroes, but man, he's flawed. There's a lot of problems. Abraham Lincoln's one of my heroes, but he's flawed. A lot of problems. But Jesus is my hero, and he's not flawed, and he has no problems. And so I need strength, and I need grace that I can be a good leader, can forgive people on my team that make mistakes, I can forgive myself when I make mistakes. I need that grace, but I also need strength. And we've seen all of those things over these past few days. So, There's something you need to surrender. That's it. This is the Battle of Surrender, the end of the revolution. George Washington goes on, as we know, to become the president, the first president of the United States, the man with the faceless monument, the man that embodies the mission, that embodies the founding. When you think of the founding of the United States, you think of George Washington. And I hope you've learned a lot from his example today, his character, the way that he finished, he led with strength and grace and the way that he carried himself, even though he didn't have the education of his peers. And I hope there's something that you could take away from that. But ultimately, I hope that this spurs you on to want to be a better leader, to learn more, to, to search history more for those great leaders. But ultimately, we know that George Washington was a great leader, but he was a man of many flaws. A paradoxical figure in many ways. He had slaves, but he, he was a, a man that fought for freedom. And he was a man of, of, of great strength and grace on this battlefield, but yet he held these people enslaved on his field at Mount Vernon. But we know he's a man and that he's flawed. And when we look to people to fulfill us and for our sole inspiration, they will fail us because they're contradictory. But I hope this spurs you on to look towards Jesus as the only leader that has walked this life perfectly. And I don't I want to be a leader more like George Washington, but more than that, more than anything else, I want for myself and for you listening to lead like Jesus Christ. The ultimate service, Mark 10:45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Go and be leaders like Jesus, because that is what America needs. America does not need another George Washington, though it might be nice. America needs Christian leaders that are going to step up for the cause of Christ and lead through service. So that is my charge for you as we end this podcast to go and lead like Jesus. 